This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We appear to be having some technical difficulties uh, this past week with KDVS. Our antenna was having some problems, evidently. As we set to work pulling this show together, we weren't sure whether we'd be broadcasting locally or not. We took the viewpoint that if we are, we are, and if we're not, we're not, and we'll just do what we can anyway. We, of course, are always on the web at radioparallax.com. We're in, and, of course, you can uh, subscribe to our podcasts. Given the uncertainties of whether we'd be broadcasting locally, we've decided to defer our interview with the legendary Chuck Yeager. General Yeager had an especially memorable uh, chat with us, and we do want to make sure that one is broadcast locally. So we're going to try and put that on either next week or the week after. Last week, if you didn't catch it, we had a wonderful interview with Lieutenant Commander Ted Robinson about uh, a very thrilling and memorable rescue he took part in during the Battle of Okinawa. A uh, fitting program, we thought, for the upcoming Memorial Day weekend. So what we're going to do is make uh, this show our uh, monthly catch-up program. We might well hear from a few of our friends before the hour is up, and then we might not. But either way, we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's start this program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being June 3rd. It was on June 3rd in 1539 that Hernando de Soto claimed the peninsula now known as Florida for the King of Spain. Speaking of claims for the King of Spain, and on June 3rd in 1770, Gaspar de Portola and Father Unipero Serra officiated at the founding of the Mission San Carlos Borromeo de Carmelo de Monterrey, better known today as the Carmel Mission. This expanded the network of administrative centers and religious communities up and down the California coast. If I'm not mistaken, I believe the Carmel Mission was always Father Serra's favorite. In this date in 1918, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that child labor laws are unconstitutional, which was mighty big of them, don't you think? On June 3rd, 1934, the Nazi government ran afoul of the Vatican, which reprimanded it for encouraging cremation, a practice the Roman Catholic Church condemned as pagan. Would have been nice if at some point the Catholic Church had spoken up and condemned, say, putting Jews in concentration camps. But I guess they were too busy rooting out Paganism. And in this state in 1946, nearly a decade before Rosa Parks would refuse to relinquish her seat at the front of a Montgomery, Alabama bus, the Supreme Court ruled that segregation of public transportation was illegal. Of course, as we've learned over the years, ruling on something and doing a damn thing about it are different. And finally, though slightly out of sequence... On this date in 1875, the French composer Georges Bizet died at the age of 36 following a heart attack the previous evening. Bizet believed his famous opera, Carmen, was a total failure. On that, he was wrong. It's considered a classic. Mr. McMillan?
Our quote of the day is the old proverb, any job worth doing is worth doing well. Which allows me to use as our quip of the day, the semi-proverb, any job not worth doing at all is certainly not worth doing well. Which regrettably seems to be the motto of talk radio. Well, thankfully not all of talk radio. Our joke of the day comes from the late actor Tony Curtis, who once said, I wouldn't be caught dead marrying a woman old enough to be my wife. And yes, we're pretty sure he meant that as a joke. Then again, based on Tony's behavior... Eh. Our stat of the day, according to the American Bar Association, is that nationally, only 46% of people summoned for jury duty actually show up. And most of them try to get out of serving. That's according to a study by the National Center for State Courts. Spokesperson Patricia Lee Renfro of the ABA said, Everybody likes jury duty, just not this week. And of course, our jury system is one of the great inanities of American life. You're paid, what, $5 a day? I suppose that might have been a good wage in 1872. Take it from me, I've seen juries in action. And, uh, well, you get what you pay for. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for keeping up with current events after a study found that Britons actually spend slightly more time reading news online than looking at pornography. It was also a good week last week for Bristol Palin, Sarah Palin's 19-year-old daughter, who is now charging from $15,000 to $30,000 to tell teens why they should practice abstinence so they don't become unwed mothers like her. All right, here's one I like. According to The Week, it was a bad week last week for three Australian thugs who began robbing and beating a German medical student in Sydney right outside Ninja Senshi Ruyu, a ninja warrior school. You should have seen the faces when they saw some ninja gear coming toward them, one of the ninjas said. While fleeing in panic, the thugs were arrested. Thankfully, you can't be arrested for doing a bad Australian accent. And finally... It was an ugly week last week for intellectual discourse after Alabama Republican gubernatorial candidate Bradley Byrne was accused in a GOP rivals campaign ad of believing in evolution. For his part, Byrne insists he's a creationist who believes every single word in the Bible. And you know, sometime uh, in the not-too-distant future, we really do need to take a look at what's in the Bible. We may use the amusing volume Ken's Guide to the Bible as we take that look. I was in Berkeley uh, Saturday evening enjoying some, uh, some fine food and drink with friends, and we were talking about what's in the Bible. In many points in the conversation, there would be a, No! Followed by a, Yes! But as we await the outcome of that heated Republican gubernatorial race down in Alabama, we'll have to go to the archives to pull out a quote from the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. In this case, this was the all-purpose extra strength version, their, their 13th edition, I believe it was. When they had a section quoting politicians. And yes, I thought of Bradley Byrne in 
referring to this quote from Representative Hunt Downer, Democrat from Louisiana, who said some years back, I don't see why the legislature should be in the business of artificial intelligence, real intelligence, or any intelligence at all. Since we brought up the Uncle John's bathroom reader, I have to (laughs) quote from another section called How to Drive People Nuts. For the sole purpose of adding a bit of levity to the program, apparently Uncle John lifted this from a uh, Maxim magazine article by what was described as our good friend Uncle Edgister. All right, there's five I like. How to drive people nuts. Go to the polar bear enclosure at the zoo and shout, Come on, Larry, that's enough. Take off that costume and come back to the office. Yeah, you can call up the addiction hotline and explain that you're hooked on phonics. You could go to the airport wearing a suit of armor and try and walk through the metal detector. How to drive people nuts? Well, you could call the National Acme Company and ask them if they have any products you can use to kill a roadrunner. But far and away, my personal favorite, wash out a gas can, punch a hole in it, then fill it with water. Then carry it down a busy lunch hour sidewalk while smoking the biggest cigar you could find. Now, I think that last item sort of sets the stage for what I'd have to say in eight years of doing this program might be the most remarkable headline we've ever quoted. This comes from last Saturday's San Francisco Chronicle. As I walked down the streets of the city and saw this, I just about fell over. Article was by Carla Martinucci. It's on page one, and it said the following. Drill, baby, drill has lost its luster. Subheadline, Whitman, Poisoner, Distant Selves from Party Mantra. Wrote Carla, California GOP gubernatorial candidates Meg Whitman and Steve Poisoner on Friday backed away from their party's drill baby drill mantra in the wake of the devastating BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, which is now considered to be the worst oil-related disaster in American history. Later in the article, Speaking to reporters after an appearance in Redwood City, Whitman distanced herself from former GOP vice president candidate Sarah Palin's drill baby drill position. Whitman said she, quote, would actually be on a different side of that issue, unquote, from Palin. No word yet on whether Meg Whitman thinks let them eat cake maybe wasn't such a funny quip after all. Whitman added she is historically been against oil drilling, saying she would support drilling off California only if technology were developed to assure that the risk of accidents, such as the one in the Gulf, would be very low. Of course, the Chronicle was unkind enough to point out that two years ago, as an advisor to to GOP presidential candidate John McCain, Whitman delivered a rousing speech from the floor of the Republican National Convention, lauding the Arizona senator for supporting the right energy policies, including lifting the ban on offshore oil drilling. Poisoner, the state insurance commissioner, told reporters before a town hall meeting in San Carlos that while drill baby drill is not the way I'd put it, (laughs) he supports offshore oil drilling to meet the state's energy needs and lower dependence on imported oil. I don't know. For better or worse, it doesn't really matter what these two Republicans say. Jerry Brown's going to be our next governor. We're happy to report that the president of Malawi did pardon the gay couple, which had been sentenced to 14 years in prison. President Bingu Wa Mutharika announced the pardon on humanitarian grounds only during a news conference with UN General Secretary Ban Ki-moon in Lilongwe, the capital. 
The president still insisted that homosexuality would remain illegal in his conservative Southern African nation. Malawi had faced international condemnation for the conviction and, har- and harsh sentencing of Tewangwe Chimbalanga and Stephen Monjeza, who were arrested in December, a day after celebrating their engagement. Anyway, we're glad those men were released. But you know, I think we have a runner-up headline, which also, oddly enough, uses the word luster. According to a reprinted article by C.J. Chivers from the New York Times, as reprinted in the Sacramento Bee on May 23rd, it was noted that the opium trade may be losing its luster in Afghanistan. This might mark one of the most preposterous headlines in the New York Times since the hubbub about weapons of mass destruction in the ramp-up to the Iraqi war. Let me just quote from it. The annual Afghan opium harvest finished this month with production sharply down from last year, Afghan farmers and American military officers say. In a somewhat more accurate passage later in the article, it was noted that many Afghan farmers say they grow poppies because it earns them much more income than any other crop, and because opium, which is non-perishable in the short term, can be brought to market any time after harvest, making it an ideal product in a conflict zone. Anyway, I don't, I don't think there's any evidence out there that uh, a, a product like opium is going to lose its popularity in Afghanistan anytime soon, so I'm not sure how it is it's losing its luster. But I suspect the point was to put that headline out whether or not it was backed up by any actual facts. And by the way, that opinion, like all the rest of them on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. And in another headline from, let's say, closer to home, one we've been sitting on for a a few weeks, we have an item from the Sacramento City Council noting that Arena Land Swap Plan is on. An article from about five weeks ago noted that in a unanimous vote, the City Council in Sacramento agreed to enter into an exclusive negotiating agreement with the development team behind a proposal for a new sports and entertainment arena at the downtown rail yards. Yes, apparently quite a few local developers are salivating at the prospect of putting an arena complex in a toxic waste dump. Not that I'm thinking that's a bad place (laughs) for a basketball arena. Fan that I am. But, you know, this story just won't go away. We have some couple of sports team owners, billionaires from Las Vegas who own casinos, who just won't stop until the city is going to contribute, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to help build them an arena. This current agreement from the city, uh, and as part of the general insanity, there's talk about moving the, uh, the California State Fair site out to where Arco Arena is. And yes, they would sell off uh, the Cal Expo area and then take the money and purchase land to construct a new state fairgrounds out in Natomas. Of course, we had a, a better article from the May 16th Sacramento Bee from Tony Bizjack, who noted that the Arco site is too small for a fair. The article explains that currently the state fair uses 412 acres at Cal Expo, whereas this prospective new site at, uh, at Arco Arena would have 185 acres. I just flew over this area a few days ago and noted to my disgust that the little Natomas uh, uh, airport where I learned to fly has now been turned into a housing development. 
Thanks in no small part to the double cross of the airport by former Mayor Heather Fargo, which we talked about before and I don't want to go over again. But I know we have listeners uh, overseas in Europe and in Asia, and when they hear these local stories like that, I think people must just roll their eyes and say, well, I guess things in America are like they are here. I think no matter where you go, guys with money seem to have their way with local politicians. I want to compliment uh, the Sacramento Bee for the article by uh, Rick Cushman on our bike trail, the American River Bike Trail. He explained how it's a bad idea to walk many people abreast down the bike trail, which I've seen many a moron do. People were reminded of something I learned back in the third grade, that you're supposed to walk facing traffic, which people don't seem to want to do. And the jerks that seem to just, you know, can't resist walking along the trail with a dog on or off a leash ought to use their heads. And frankly, I just don't understand why anybody would walk a stroller along a bike trail. Of course, speaking up in behalf of the idiots in the bike trail was someone who wrote the Sacramento Bee subsequently, who said the following, I wish there was a place where cyclists could safely go all out, but we haven't agreed that the bike trail is that place. Until we do, walkers like me, moms with strollers, and those pesky children will continue to get in the way. The user who can do the most harm bears the most responsibility. In this case, it's the person on a fast-moving bike, not two slow-moving feet. Sure, lady, go for a stroll on the interstate. If you can get converted into road pizza, you can always argue that it wasn't your fault, it was the car. After all, they're going much faster. Anyway, don't become a Darwin Award winner, folks. And you know, it's called a bike trail for a reason. There's smarter places you can go with your kid in a stroller. Okay, enough said. Now let's hear from our old pal, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here to speak of the newest war in the heads-up display of Air Force One. Now, the president may have wrestled Afghanistan and Iraq to tentative standoffs, but in this third war with the Gulf of Mexico, he's losing bad and taking shots from both sides, from both sides. Some Republicans accuse him of overindulging British petroleum, while others for scapegoating British petroleum. Of course, one of the guys who thinks Obama's being too tough is Rand Paul a man used to disturbing people with his views and his hair. Please, someone tell him, not even Lyle Lovett wears it like that anymore. Both sides of the aisle are calling for the president to ignore BP's jurisdiction and let the military take over. Because we cannot trust BP about anything. If they smile and say hello, check your back for shards of a malfunctioning blowout protector. In the last six weeks, not a single word that has gushed out of their mouths has been true. And why would it be? Their sole object is profit, covering corporate butt. Eventually, they'll divest themselves of all U.S. assets, change their name, and slink away to escape financial culpability in the courts. But until then, the main object is to deflect blame, keeping responsibility to a minimum. BP is not concerned with plugging or cleaning or stopping or fixing or reimbursing anything, except for how it affects the quarterly dividend. And they will lie and deny and incomply and do whatever it takes. 
They will lie about what has happened. They will lie about what is happening. They will lie about what they expect to happen. They will lie because that is the culture in which all corporations live. They will lie because it is their nature. They will lie to stay in practice. If you offer a proof, they will lie. Remember when all this started on Earth Day and they said there was no leak? Why? Because they thought they could get it under control and nobody would be the wiser. That's why. People are calling for a boycott. Not enough. Don't just boycott British Petroleum. Use their bathroom, steal their toilet paper, and then send it to the Gulf. If they can't do the right thing, we'll do it for them. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Always a pleasure to hear from Mr. Durst. I'm sorry to say I can't put my hands on an article I wanted to quote for this show where someone was saying, well, you know, uh, the government, you know, is, couldn't possibly punish BP as much as the market will. And my goodness, their stock prices dropped like 16%. N- no, no, no. I know that, that that is not nearly enough for what is now clearly the nation's worst oil spill. They're now admitting that it's not 5,000 uh, barrels a day. It's more like 12, maybe 19. We've heard, we've heard estimates closer to 100,000. Article on the Washington Post by Joel Achenbach and David Farenthold noted that the, these new figures support what many observers have assumed from the images of oil slicking the Gulf surface, slathering beaches, and spurting from the pipe on the sea floor. So the spill has been upgraded by a factor of four from what BP says, but some estimates which are seem to be based on the oil that hasn't yet risen to the surface indicate that it may be four times bigger than that. If you accept uh, the new numbers, then the BP spill in the Gulf is three Exxon Valdezes. Well, at least as of May 27th. Federal officials say cleaning up the spill has cost the government $87 million so far, making it the third most expensive cleanup effort in the nation's history. We should refer to cleanup effort in quotes. Since a lot of, a lot of what they did was steam cleaning up in Prince Edward Sound in the wake of the Exxon Valdez was so that camera crews could photograph people doing something. Not that it represented any meaningful sort of cleanup. But anyway, that's enough of that. Let's, uh, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Ever. We got plenty more in the next couple segments. Mm-hmm. 